When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on children and mental health. And one of the reasons we're doing a lot on children and mental health and parenting and that kind of stuff over the last week and this week and a little bit into next week, um, May is Mental Health Month, if you remember. And one of the things that we found is a lot of times mental health issues start in childhood and adolescence. And, you know, you can say there are problems in childhood and adolescence that can trigger them. But for a lot of people, they have their first episode in childhood and adolescence. So if we are educating people to be more aware, then we can provide earlier intervention services and hopefully prevent people from becoming adults who are struggling with chronic recurrent major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety or something. So that's really kind of what we're going to look at um, or why we're focusing on these things right now. During this course, we're going to recognize normal de developmental stages in children and signs of problems in development. Remember, our mental health and our uh, is, is tied to our physical health. So with, when children are evidencing delays in physical development, they may also have some cognitive delays and vice versa. There's also been connections between... Um, children who start to fail in school maybe they were doing well and then all of a sudden they start doing poorly in school there's a connection between that and them starting to develop anxiety and depressive disorders so we want to make sure that children are developing roughly in line with their peers everybody develops at slightly different rates but roughly in line we're going to list risk factors that negatively affect children's mental health, and we can't list all of them, but we're going to hit some of the highlights. Describe and identify symptoms of childhood mental health disorders, the big ones. Not, we're not going to cover everything. Not time for that with the DSM. We'll name community-based prevention and treatment resources and identify major services offered by these organizations so we know where to refer to. And I will tell you, I am a huge fan of early intervention services, um, but we'll talk about that later. And I want you to gain knowledge of how to treat mental health problems in children. This is one of those things that I find is really kind of quirky. We have specialties and requirements to do hypnosis. We have specialties and requirements to do sex therapy, but we don't have any specialty requirement to treat children. And children are not little adults. They require a whole different approach to, to treatment. So I've always found that as a little bit odd because, you know, I was, when I went through graduate school, I think as most of us did, we were prepared to work with adults. We were not trained in play therapy. We were not trained to work with children. Um, so those are things that we want to consider when we're looking at clients and going, is this a client that I can take on or is this somebody I need to refer? So remember that children are not little adults. They have their unique developmental needs. When we talk about problems and mental disorders in children, a lot of times they express or are symptomatic in different ways than adults are. So it's important to 
make sure we understand what depression in a child looks like, what bipolar in a child looks like, as opposed to in adults, because it's probably going to look different. The estimates for the prevalence of mental disorders in children ranges from 5%, and that's those children that have severe mental health issues, to 21%, children with minimal mental health issues, enough to be diagnosed, um, maybe just with adjustment disorder, but enough to be diagnosed. Let's think about that for a second. 21%, that is one in five children right now, are meeting the criteria for having a diagnosable mental disorder. That's staggering, and that's heartbreaking. Research indicates that half of all lifetime cases of mental illness begin by the age of 14. So we're looking at, for generalized anxiety. If we're looking for those things, um, we can start intervening early. We can educate teachers and parents about what to look for. We can ensure that pediatricians are on the lookout for some of these um, developmental things when children go in for their for their checkups. We can make sure that school counselors are well-versed in what mental health issues look like so we can provide early intervention. Additional training ensures increased availability for early intervention in preschools, schools, juvenile justice, and medical offices. So there's a couple that I didn't mention yet. Juvenile justice, a lot of times kids end up in DJJ because they've got, they're acting out for some reason. Could be because they're lacking coping skills, could be conduct disorder, could be a lot of things. But if the DJJ officer is able to identify and make referrals effectively, it's likely going to help reduce recidivism and keep that child from continuing to to offend and become an adult offender and preschools you know a lot of times we just kind of scan skim over preschools but preschools are awesome places for us to provide education and early intervention to children they don't have the um restrictions of having to meet the state testing standards you know in elementary middle and and high school now even getting outreach programs into those locations is really difficult because the school administration sees that as de detracting from the time that they can focus on preparing the children for their state test what the fcat the tcap whatever it is in your state so you know we really want to look at you know, number one, convincing administration that your kids are going to do a lot better on these tests if they can learn, and they're going to learn a lot better if they're not depressed or anxious. But that's a whole different ballgame. Um, but we also want to look at preschools because a lot of preschool teachers have, you know, a lot of contact with these youth, and they have the ability to intervene and teach these skills early and serve as role models for good coping skills early on when children are just absolute sponges. So normal development, and we're going to hit the big four that I really like to cover. There are other developmental theories out there, but Erickson's psychosocial stages. So trust versus mistrust is the first one, and this is really the infancy stage where the child is learning that they can trust other people to meet their needs. They cry because they're hungry, they get fed. They cry because they're cold, they get bundled up. Autonomy versus shame is kind of your toilet training area. The child is learning to become um, independent, and they want to take responsibility and ownership of their own body. They're starting to learn how to bathe themselves, toilet training, and they're going to start trying to dress themselves at this point. And, you know, that can be challenging, but it's really important for parents to be somewhat lenient i mean you know my kids sometimes picked out outfits that i'm looking at going oh wow you know that's not something i would put together but that's what they wanted to wear and it was weather appropriate so i chose not to correct them some people some parents will correct them but i wanted to allow them to express themselves as much as possible and feel like okay i can do this feel a sense of self-efficacy Initiative versus guilt. This is when we start moving into kindergarten and elementary years, where the children are trying to 
move out from that home base. They're trying to take initiative and make plans and do things and ask people to engage with them. And if they keep getting shut down, then they may feel guilty about taking initiative and they may kind of withdraw. And then industry versus inferiority, that is your middle school and into high school sort of age range where children are trying new things. They're going to different types of classes. They're going to art class and gym class and home ec and shop class and, you know, whatever lessons and teams they're on. And they're figuring out what they're good at. And it's up to us during this period to help them rec remember or recognize that you're not going to be good at everything. You know, you are going to fail and that's okay. It means you're not perfect and nobody is. But we want to help them focus on the things that they're good at. You know, you are able to do this, so awesome. Let's focus on this over here. Okay, so you're not going to be the star quarterback. You know, not everybody can be the quarterback. So what can you focus on? What can you do well? Piaget's cognitive development, if you remember, um, really focuses on what children how children can think and in the beginning it's sensory motor they think with their hands then it comes to pre-operational and then concrete operational and concrete operational is, is elementary school years when they have to see things up until the ch time children are in um, middle school really they have difficulty with abstract concepts. So when we're trying to talk to them about things, we need to make it as concrete as possible because they have difficulty thinking about things that aren't right there in front of them. Bandura's social learning theory tells us that children are going to learn what they live, basically. They are going to learn by observing others in their school, others in their community, others in their household, and others in the media so it's important that as parents and you know we try to monitor and make sure that children are exposed to appropriate social modeling now they're going to have inappropriate exposure at, at certain times you know they may see a show on TV at when they're at their friend's house that you wouldn't have let them see okay you know, no harm, no foul. You can usually just process that with the child. You don't want to keep them in a cocoon, but it's important to talk about things, why it's the right thing to do, why that may have been the wrong thing to do, whatever it is. And then Kohlberg's moral development. Um, the first stage when people are generally are really young, it's obedience. You're going to do it to avoid getting punished. Then instrumental is you're going to do it because it benefits you. Conformity is you're going to do it because those are the rules and you're just going to, you're going to follow. And that kind of goes with obedience, um, but it's, in conformity, it's less about punishment and more about assimilation. And then the final stage is kind of in individual rights when it gets into more ethical um, moral development so those are the ones we'll talk about there's one other stage past that that most people don't even get to uh, but when, when you're reasoning with a child you have to take this into consideration if they are motivated by obedience then you know you want to tell them what you want done and you know be very clear so they can follow because they want to follow they want to please you they want to be obedient when they get a little older you want to rationalize with them, reason with them in terms of how is this beneficial for you and for me? You know, if you do this or when you do this, then I will read you another story. Or when you do this, you will avoid losing your privilege or whatever the case may be. But you want to make sure they understand the purpose of what they're doing and how it benefits them. Conformity, and it doesn't have to be a bribe. It can be you're going to avoid punishment. You know, it benefits you because you want to be able to go out and ride your bike tomorrow. Well, if you want to be able to do that, then you can't be on restriction. So these are things we've got to consider when we're working with children. We want to look at, you know, are they getting their needs met? And are we communicating in a way that makes sense to them cognitively and morally? And what kind of environment are they in and what are they learning from their environment? And sometimes helping children feel better 
is a matter of changing their environment. Sometimes that's not possible. You know, if you've got a child who's in middle school and is being bullied, it may not be possible to yank that child out of one school and put them in another school. So we want to look at social learning theory and help them find positive role models. So developmental psychopathology comes from multiple sources. Um, and this can, you know, kids can develop depression for a variety of reasons. And we need to look at the overlap of these reasons. You can take two kids and expose them to the same situation. And they, one may have a very dramatic reaction and the other may not care. So we want to look at what affects them and how can we sort of predict sometimes who may be more troubled by certain things or who may struggle more with depression or anxiety. So specific characteristics of the child, including biological characteristics, how old they are um, and any cognitive issues they may have, psychological and genetic factors. Some children are going to be more responsive and more um, emotional than others. And that's just the way they're wired. And the environment is going to impact the, how the child deals with things, including their parents, siblings, and family relations. Are they supportive? Are they nurturing or not? Their peer and neighborhood factors. Do they have friends they can rely on? Do they feel a connection to their neighborhood? School and community factors. If they are doing well in school and feeling an attachment there, that's going to be supportive and buffer against mental health issues. If they are feeling like they're failing and like they don't fit in, then they're going to experience more stress, which sets them up to be more vulnerable to mental health issues. And then the larger social, social cultural context, things that are going on such as racism and discrimination and how the person experiences those and a lot of this if you know understand Brenner's ecological systems theory that's kind of what we're talking about here um, and you can google that go online um, and and learn more about that if you want to understand sort of the multiple factors that influence and if you try to do a regression analysis to predict which factors would make somebody more likely to become depressed you'd find that you had you know hundreds when you started looking at all the different things that can impact somebody. We want to understand adaptability. Children are typically, and humans, are typically self-writing and self-organizing. Within a given context, we tend to adapt as much as possible in order to get our needs met. So if you're in a particular environment and it is better to just to keep your mouth shut and fly under the radar, then that's what you're probably going to do. If you're in an environment where it is better to speak up and try to be the leader of the class or something, then that's what you're going to do. So we want to look at their environment in terms of you know, if this child is presenting as depressed and withdrawn, in the, what environments are they experiencing this as a self-writing behavior? In what environments, you know, what about their environments might be existing that are teaching them? That this is really what you want to do. You want to fly low so nobody really notices. Psychopathology may be the result of survival adaptations to a pathological environment. It may not be the kid at all. The kid may want to survive, and this is the creative way that they have found to survive in their particular situation. In addicted households, there is the phrase, if you will, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. And that is a self-writing set of behaviors in an addicted household. You're more likely to not trigger the person with the addiction and to not get in trouble and have all kinds of chaos if you just don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. Just numb it out and go through it. Not saying this is how we want children to go through life, but I'm trying to highlight the fact that um, the environment itself could be the identified patient, basically, and the child really could be pretty resilient because they're surviving through that. Understand timing. Is this an appropriate behavior at this age? If a th three-year-old is wetting the bed, that's different than if a 13-year-old is wetting the bed. Um, if 
a three-year-old or a two-year-old bites somebody. That's different than if a 12 or 13-year-old does it. So we want to look at appropriate behavior. And I use the term appropriate, um, not that hitting or biting or wetting the bed is necessarily appropriate, but is it expected at this age? And if so, then we can deal with it. If it is something that is grossly age inappropriate, then we need to look at what might be causing that. We also need to understand the context. The same behavior in one setting or culture might be acceptable and even normative where it can be seen as pathological in another. There are some cultures where making direct eye contact with your elders and talking back and being assertive um, is, is not okay. And in other cultures, it's almost encouraged, you know, not to be insubordinate, but to stand up for yourself, to be independent, to have your own thoughts and opinions. And that can be culturally sanctioned. So we want to understand the context that this is happening. The way you behave at home, for example, is, and that's a context, is going to be different likely than the way you behave at school or the way you behave, you know, somewhere else in public. And it's considered... Um, more appropriate we have to look at the context of what's going on and whether that's appropriate and we have to understand the degree you know if somebody gets upset if a child gets upset or does something that is um let's let's take depression that's one we see a lot with teenagers um, we want to look at the degree of depression teenagers can be kind of moody and not to say that we want to ignore that we want to make sure that we're checking in with them and they've got the coping skills. But when those hormones are going all over the place, it is not uncommon for teenagers to be moody. So we want to look at, for this person, you know, is this a normal level of moodiness? And in comparison with others, you know, other teenagers, does this seem like it's kind of in the ballpark? Or is this person experiencing ex an extreme level of distress? So let me go over those again real quick. Multiple sources. We want to look at all the different factors that could be contributing to either the resilience or the psychopathology. We want to understand how this behavior is serving a function because all behaviors that we do tend to serve a function. If a child is acting out, they may be just craving structure and boundaries because they feel out of control or they may not have coping skills or they may be in a pathological environment that's teaching them inappropriate ways to respond but we want to understand that you know generally what they're doing is adaptable we want to look at the timing and the degree you know for this child at this age is this degree of whatever this behavior is appropriate or not and does the behavior occur across contexts, or is it only in one context? I had one child that I worked with um, that when she was at school, she would pull out her eyebrow hairs. And she didn't do that when she was at home, and she, but she only did it when, when she was at school, and it got much worse during state testing time. So, obviously, the context there was the stress of performance at school, which was enhanced during state testing time. So, we wanted to understand what was going on. So, risk factors for psychopathology. Genetics. If it runs in the family, then there's a chance the person is predisposed. Doesn't mean they're going to have it. It just means they have a greater likelihood. Substance exposure can alter brain, brain chemicals. Low birth weight. When children have a low birth weight, you know, they're not exactly sure why, but when children are born with low birth weight, they tend to have more cognitive and emotional difficulties. And prematurity. If a child is premature, they are almost always low birth weight. My son was um, 2 pounds and 14 ounces, and my daughter was 3 pounds and 7 ounces. So... You know, they were both premature when they were born and obviously small. Um, psychosocial, domestic violence, if they're exposed to that, that can, that will have an effect. If they're abused themselves, that will have an effect. If they are exposed to others who are misusing substances, uh, a parent who is, comes home every night and gets just 
completely drunk because they cannot deal with life on life's terms. So they're un emotionally unavailable to the child. Well, the child is not learning effective coping skills. The child is actually learning ineffective coping skills. And the child lacks the um, emotional support from the caregiving unit. So there are a lot of things that happen when there is substance misuse in the household. Household mental illness can be the same way. If you've got a parent who is struggling with mental illness, they may become emotionally unavailable and for extended periods of time, and it can have an impact. It doesn't mean it has to, but we want to look, you know, if a caregiver or a person in the household is regularly struggling with me mental illness, how do we help the children understand and cope with that? That's the big thing. It's not to make this other person go away. It's to help the children understand and cope with it. And bullying is a huge factor for depression, anxiety, social phobia. Stressful life, life events, including parent separation, parent incarceration, and parent abandonment, all have their own independent issues um, and impact on children. Sometimes, you know, parents can separate and children deal with it okay if it's handled well and, and they understand. Other times it can be, get really ugly and the children can feel stuck in the middle or feel responsible for it. So, again, none of these is saying that a person is doomed to have psychopathology if they have any of these risk factors. But risk factors say they're at a greater chance. So we need to provide them extra buffering resources. Childhood maltreatment, not getting enough food, not being in a safe environment, that can, and, and uh, child neglect. And peer and sibling influences can also be a risk factor for psychopathology if peers and siblings, and this kind of goes with bullying, are unsupportive or, or downright mean to one another. And siblings will occasionally be mean to one another. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, when my son was... Um, four and a half his daughter had just or his sister had just started uh, crawling and i remember one day going in the kitchen to make supper and i heard him in the living room and he was going stop resisting stop resisting and i walked in there and he had his sister prone out on the floor and he was trying to put his little baby handcuffs on her and i'm like no son we don't arrest our sister um and he would regularly you know do sort of weird things like that to her um, not because he was trying to be mean but he was actually trying to play um, so those are just different things we want to make sure that we process with the children so almost two-thirds of surveyed adults report at least one adverse childhood experience and more than 20 percent of adults more than one in five report three or more adverse childhood experiences when they were growing up the Adverse Childhood Experience Score, or the ACE score, is additive. If you have one, then, you know, okay, it may be a risk factor. The more risk factors you get, the greater the likelihood is that you're going to experience some sort of mental psychopathology at some point in your life. As the number of ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Experiences, increases, so does the risk of heart attack and heart disease. Well, let's think about that. Heart attack and heart disease are directly re related to lifestyle factors and stress. So, you know, we've got somebody who has been stressed out their whole life. Mental distress, dis depression, smoking, which is often, you know, some people take it up in order to fit into a crowd, but a lot of people use smoking um, as a coping tool, if you will, when they start to get stressed out. Disability, unemployment, lowered educational attainment, stroke, and diabetes are all linked to adverse childhood experiences. And you can go online to the um, Adverse Childhood Experiences website and look at the survey, and there's all kinds of information there. Assessment and treatment. Assessment of children is more difficult because children often can't verbalize some things. They don't know what's normal. You know, it... In their household, if the parents have always yelled at one another, that may seem normal to them. They may not understand that that doesn't happen in all households. So a lot of what we have to go on has to be observed 
from the children, watching them play. You know, if they start playing house and the, you know, adult figures in the household are constantly arguing and bickering at each other's throats, we have an idea that they may be being exposed to that a lot. Information on the assessment is also gained from adults, whether or not it's appropriate for a child's diagnosis. So we're going to get information, but you've got to remember, adults often are going to put the best foot forward. They're not going to say, oh, yeah, we're fighting all the time and others are, there's at least domestic violence, um, you know, twice a month in our household. They're not going to say that. So we can only go on the information that we have. And that's true with adults, too. But for children, there's just so much more that they just don't know what to report or how to report it. Treatment for children focuses on psychotherapy, <clears throat> play therapy, and in, to some, in some instances, psychopharmacology. Now, remember, in, I think it was 2007, the FDA put out that black box warning on SSRIs that said that in children and adolescents, um, antidepressants can increase the risk for suicide. So a lot of physicians have gotten away from psychopharmacology as much, except for, for ADHD. Um, Amber asked the question, if there are studies regarding which more affects a child, maternal depression or paternal depression? And honestly, I don't know. Um, I did do a presentation on um, postpartum depression, and we learned that in postpartum depression, it can happen to both mothers and fathers. It's not just a mom thing, and it does affect the child. Um, my guess would be, and I'll just have to look up the studies after this class, uh, my guess would be part of it depends on who the primary caregiver is. So if dad is the one staying home with the child before the child goes to school, um, then it may be more impactful if dad has postpartum or has depression. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not sure. I want to take a look at that. Um, Overview of childhood mental health disorders. They have anxiety disorders, attention and disruptive disorders, eating disorders. Yep. A lot of kids go on their first diet at the age of eight. Yuck. That's, that's just painful. And mood disorders. So ADHD. And we're going to go through these really quickly because I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of these diagnoses. But um, two major components are hyperactivity and impulsivity and inattention. A lot of times, boys get diagnosed more with hyperactive ADHD, and girls get diagnosed more or misdiagnosed um, as inattentive. They may have attention deficit disorder, but they're not jumping all over the place. They tend to be more daydreamy and wander off, and you know, suddenly they're not paying attention. A lot of times, the symptoms will present before the age of seven, and Again, we want to look at age appropriateness here. A five-year-old boy, you expect, and girl, but um, you expect to be kind of a little bit wild, kind of wanting to go out, wanting to play, having a lot of energy. Any child, you want to expect that a little bit. Any child, you're going to expect to occasionally daydream. So we want to look at, you know, how normative is it? for this age group. They're not going to have the attention span of a 12 or a 13-year-old. So, you know, can they pay attention for enough time that's appropriate for them? Causes of ADHD, they're really not sure. Um, they've related it to genetics, brain injury, exposure to environmental toxins during pregnancy or at a young age, alcohol and tobacco use during pregnancy, premature delivery, and low birth weight. So during that fetal development period, a lot can go wrong. It doesn't mean that the child is doomed. I worked in a um, uh, postpartum unit. We had 10 beds, and the women we brought in as early as we could in their pregnancy and kept them through delivery and the first six months that the child was, you know, out. And uh, a lot of those children had been exposed in utero to a variety of substances, including alcohol, marijuana, and cocaine. So, and a lot of those children had no developmental delays. You know, they, they really, they came out and it was just, it was kind of a miracle we we're looking at. Treatment for ADHD often involves medication. 
unlike some of the other disorders, ADHD does tend to respond pretty well to medication. Now, some medications will, as my, my son's pediatrician referred to it, zombify them. Um, and some of your older ADHD medications, when kids take them, they tend to not be nearly as responsive. Um, some of the newer medications, they've taken out um, part of the, the drug that made them zombified, and it still helps with their attention, but they're not quite as flat and <clears throat> unresponsive. So encourage parents to work with the physician to find a medication that works and find a medication that the child can still be a happy-go-lucky child on. You know, we don't want them just completely blank-faced all the time. We just want them to be able to slow down enough to focus. Parent training and parent-child interaction therapy are super helpful for ADHD. Parent-child interaction therapy often involves um, videotaping the family at home and the therapist observing it in order to identify uh, how the parents interact and find places that can be fine-tuned to help the parent better help the child deal with their ADHD symptoms. And straight-up behavior therapy, behavior modification, can be really helpful. PTSD, and yeah, children do get PTSD, unfortunately. Um, they may relive, relive the event over and over in thought or play. So we want to look at what's going on. And remember, for children, what's traumatic can be very different than what's traumatic for adults. Children have a very limited scope of reference. So what's traumatic to them can, you know, adults can not think anything, not think twice about it. Television can be traumatic for children if they're seeing something like the World Trade Center or Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Harvey for hours and hours and hours, day after day after day. To a child, especially a young child, think cognitively, they're in concrete operational, so what they see is what's happening. It seems like that, what they're seeing on television, is happening over and over again, and it's not going away. So it's re-traumatizing them. Um, so we want to make sure we process that with children if we're going to watch that in front of them. Make sure they understand that this is over. It's a replay, just like when we put on, you know, Elmo for the 14th time, you know. They recorded it once, and we're just putting the tape in again and help them understand these things. But pay attention to the child and what seems like it might be traumatic for them. Nightmares and sleep problems. Becoming very upset when something causes memories of the event. Lack of positive emotions. Intense ongoing fear or sadness. Irritability or angry outbursts. Hypervigilance, constantly looking for possible threats or being easily startled. Acting helpless, hopeless, or withdrawn, where the child just wants mom or dad to, you know, take care of them, or they don't want anything to do with anybody. Denying that the event happened or feeling numb, or avoiding places or people associated with the event. Now, a lot of these are pretty standard PTSD symptoms, but they're they may be displayed a little bit differently in children, such as reliving the event through play. Most 40-year-olds aren't going to relive the event through play, um, but a four-year-old will. There is an overlap between ADHD and PTSD that is important to be aware of. Difficulty concentrating or learning, being easily distracted, not seeming to listen, disorganization, hyperactivity, restlessness, and difficulty sleeping are symptoms of both ADHD and PTSD. So if you've got a child who's coming in for one of those, you want to make sure to rule out the other one. Could they have them both? Sure. But we want to make sure that we're treating the right thing. If, they're, if they've really got PTSD and the parent doesn't understand, you know, maybe they don't know about the trauma that happened, so they're bringing Johnny in for ADHD. We want to, you know, make sure we figure out what we're dealing with. Depression and suicide are the most frequently diagnosed mood disorders in teens, um, especially major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, and what we now call persistent depressive disorder, used to be dysthymia. Approximately two-thirds of children 
with major depressive disorder also have another mental health disorder. A lot of times it's one of the anxiety group. Sometimes it's PTSD, but a lot of times it's either generalized anxiety or social phobia. In the 15 to 19-year-old age group, boys are four times more likely to commit suicide than girls. When we say commit, that means actually be successful in following through. But girls are twice as likely to attempt. So we want to be aware of self-injurious behaviors and anything like that. Factors that can trigger depression in youth, bullying or other peer issues. Again, remembering that for a child, their high school or their middle school is likely their whole world. You know, they haven't had the experiences. They haven't had the breadth of contacts that we have by the time we get to be 20, 30, 40. So if their peer group, if their one, you know, their social system seems like it's against them or hateful, it can be really devastating. Academic pressure or problems can also trigger depression. If the child is struggling, and it could just be in one subject or it could be in multiple subjects, going from um, kindergarten to first grade is a huge transition uh, for a lot of kids because kindergarten, yeah, you're learning things, but it's much less structured. When they go to first grade, it becomes much more structured and much more about the state testing. Um, chronic disease can trigger depression if the child has Crohn's disease or anything like that. Alcohol or drug use in the child can trigger depression. Family discord, sleep deprivation, confusion about sexual orientation, other mental health disorders, learning disabilities. We want to make sure we're screening for. Um, visual problems, not just cognitive problems, visual problems, dyslexia, and any other learning disabilities. Remember, children can have learning disabilities with reading text, can have learning disabilities with math, and, and or across the board. So make sure that your, your school counselor is knowledgeable, which most of them are, on learning disabilities, because that's one of those things that just one more thing we have to learn about if we're going to take it on. And it's just a whole big thing to learn about. So it's better to have somebody you can refer to who can do the assessment for learning disabilities. Low self-esteem and a history of witnessing or being the victim of violence can trigger depression. Examples of behaviors that are often seen when children are depressed Feeling sad, hopeless, or irritable most of the time. Now, sad and hopeless, not uncommon in adult depression. Irritability is the unique thing with children. If children are contrary and irritable and cranky a lot, uh, we may want to look at depression. Not wanting to do or enjoy fun things. They just, they want to sit down, they want to watch TV. They don't want to do anything. Changes in eating patterns, changes in sleeping patterns, changes in energy, you know, those are pretty standard symptoms. Having a hard time paying attention. Now, for adults, we talk about difficulty with concentration. But for children, a lot of times they're not able to articulate that. But parents and teachers will start complaining that he just doesn't pay attention. I'll be talking to him and he walks off. Um, so those are things that we want to look for to kind of translate into difficulty concentrating, that hard time paying attention. Feeling worthless, useless, or guilty about things. Yes, children are going to make mistakes. You know, we all make mistakes. But there's very little that a child is probably going to, should feel guilty for um, because there's very little that they're going to do that's that bad. Self-injury and self-destructive behavior can also be symptoms of depression. When the pain gets too much. Self-injurious self behaviors, remember that self-writing reflex? Self-injurious behaviors can be either to get attention, and that's if they're putting it out there, going, look what I did. But in most cases, children hide self-injurious behaviors. That self-injury is a way of controlling. When they are in physical pain, they are not in psychological pain. They're focusing on controlling this physical pain, and it gives them re the relief from what's going on inside their head. Uh, so we want to look at uh, 
those behaviors as potentially expressions of depression and a feeling of helplessness. Relapse rate is high for depression among young people. They're going through transitions. They're trying to figure out their identity. They're trying to develop social skills. And they've got hormones and growth spurts and voice changes and everything else going on. Yeah, it's a really tough, stressful time. So I can see why relapse rate would be high. Depression tends to run in families. So we want to screen early. And if mom and dad or mom or dad had a history of depression, be a little bit more alert to junior. It is higher in families in which a parent, mom or dad, it doesn't matter, had postpartum depression. Higher among girls. Cognitive behavioral therapy has been deemed effective for pre-adolescent children. So there's a lot of things we can do with cognitive distortions um, that can help children buffer and, and learn to use more positive self-talk, quiet that internal critic, deal with anxiety. There's a lot of cognitive behavioral stuff that children, even in the concrete operational phase, can handle. For adolescents, behavioral, behavioral problem-solving and self-control therapies are also, have also been found to be useful. And yes, um, hormone changes can cause, can, can be highly correlated. I don't want to say can cause, can be highly correlated with depression, just like hormone changes can be highly correlated with um, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. You know, we're kind of looking at the same thing here, um, but we're also looking at it for adult, for adults and children, not adults and children, but for boys and girls. Changes in testosterone levels. When testosterone gets really high, you can see a lot more aggression and anxiety. When testosterone is low, you can see more depression, flatness, lack of energy. So we do want to pay attention to those. It may be, you know, doctors can measure that really easily. So it may be worth referring the kid in for an evaluation because it may be something that's going to pass in a couple of weeks. You know, it may be one of those growth spurt things, but we do want to bring it to the attention of the primary care. Suicide risk factors, hopelessness, low self-esteem, and the attribution virus, bias, and negative views about their own competency are major risk factors for suicidality. Now, attribution bias is that feeling that we attribute everything to us, you know, um, and we attribute everything to either powers out of our control or it's our fault. Over 90% of teens who commit suicide have a history of mental illness. A low level of communication between parents and teens or a stressful event can also be linked to suicide. Well, you know, we can impact the communication between parents and teens. We can encourage parents to communicate. And teens are sometimes just going to roll their eyes. That's okay. You know, at least we're trying. Even if they think we're obnoxious and annoying, at least they know we care. We can't buffer them from every stressful event. So what we want to do is try to make sure that we minimize any other factors out there. Exposure to suicide in the media can trigger copycat suicides. Um, so we do want, want to be aware of that. And again, bullying is a huge risk factor for suicidal ideation because sometimes kids feel like they can't escape it because it's on their Instagram, it's on their Facebook, it's at school, it's 24-7 just nastiness and flaming. So treatment for suicidal ideation is cognitive behavioral therapy focused on problem solving. You know, this is where you are right now. This is very unpleasant. What can we do to help you address it? Dialectical behavior therapy focused on vulnerability prevention. If children are, you know, children need a lot more sleep than adults do. And a lot of children don't get enough sleep, don't eat a good enough diet, which means their body is going to have higher levels of cortisol and not have the building blocks to make the neurotransmitters to help them um, be happy. So we need to make sure that they've got a good diet, um, good sleep, and they're regulating their circadian rhythms. You don't want a child going home and sitting in a dark room playing video games until it's time to go to bed because then they're... Um, pineal gland just doesn't even know when it's time to make melatonin for sleep. So those are some of the big vulnerabilities that we put out there. 
distress tolerance, teaching them skills for tolerating anger and anxiety and depression. What can they do? And DBT has two great ac acronyms. Um, they're accepts and improves. And if you look up DBT acronyms online, you'll find all kinds of images and handouts on them. Problem-solving skills can help youth solve problems and start feeling better, figure out how to improve the next moment. We can't change right now, but we can improve the next moment. And interpersonal effectiveness skills, most of us need those tuned up occasionally. So helping youth who are still developing their interpersonal skills become more effective and be able to communicate their wants, needs, wishes, and boundaries. We need to provide intervention after the suicidal death of a peer or a loved one. Make sure there's community outreach for youth who are thinking about suicide, a suicide hotline, especially a youth-oriented suicide hotline. Um, and method restriction. You know, it's ideal not to have lots and lots of opiates or benzodiazepines available or unlocked firearms. Now, if a youth wants to do it, you know, they can hang themselves with a belt. They can um, cut themselves with a knife. There are things that they can do. And just because I'm saying it doesn't mean it's prompting anybody because they've thought about it. You know, just you want to be able to bring it up and talk about it and put it out there, not make it a secret. Um, so just recognize that. If someone is determined to do it, they most likely will, um, but we can generally, there's a period before that that they're ambivalent where we can intervene. Anxiety in children can be evidenced by being very afraid when away from their parents, which is your separation anxiety, having extreme fears or phobias, being afraid of school or other places where there are people, you know, your social anxiety, being worried about the future and about bad things happening. You know, generalized anxiety, and having repeated episodes of sun, sudden, unexpected, intense fear that come with symptoms like heart pounding, having trouble breathing, and feeling dizzy, which is panic disorder. So all of those anxiety disorders that we see in adults, kids can have them too. And we usually use cognitive behavioral therapy for those. Autism, risk factors for autism, including include having a sibling with an autism spectrum disorder. Now, remember, there's a spectrum. In the DSM-5, they kind of did away with the individual diagnoses, and now it's just autism spectrum disorders. Having older parents, having certain genetic conditions, and a very low birth weight can contribute to the risk of developing autism. People with autism spectrum disorders have difficulty with communication and interaction with other people. A lot of times difficulty with making eye contact, difficulty with um, understanding what other people are interested in, restricted interests and repetitive behaviors, symptoms that hurt the person's ability to function properly in school, work, and other areas of life, which problems with communication and interaction are going to impair their them in multiple domains. Repeating certain behaviors or having unusual behaviors, such as repeating words or phrases, can be common. Um, having a lasting intense interest in certain topics, such as numbers, details, or facts. Some children get fascinated by things. My son went through periods. There was dinosaurs for a while, then there was trains for a while, then it became Star Wars. And I'm still waiting for him to get out of that phase. But... <laughs> You know, they develop these intense interests, and that can be very, very normal. It's when the, that's all the child is interested in, and they can't seem to focus on anything else. It can become a problem. Getting upset by slight changes in routine and being more or less sensitive than other people to sensory input, such as light, noise, clothing, or temperature. So again, these last two things, think about life on life's terms. Routines are going to change, and you're going to go into different places where the temperature, the light, and the noise are, are different. Um, and, and for people with autism, those are really traumatic experiences. Those can be really intense sensory or experiential things. Strengths of people with autism, though, include being able to learn things in detail and remember information for long periods of time, especially about that one thing that they're interested in. They're often strong visual and auditory learners, and many 
excel in math, science, music, or art. Treatment for autism focuses on special education, helping them have an environment where they can learn, behavior modification, and some limited psychopharmacological interventions in order to address especially anxiety issues associated with um, changes in routine or lighting or anything like that. Disruptive disorders are your oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder. ODD usually starts before eight years of age, but no later than 12. Children with ODD are more likely to act oppositional or defiant around people they know well and more frequently um, than their peers. So we expect children to be oppositional and defiant occasionally. That's not pathological. That's them asserting their independence and trying to push boundaries. But it's the children that do it more frequently than their peers and tend to be, do it to the people that they know really well. Um, this is when we want to start looking at this diagnosis. Examples include being angry or losing one's temperature, temper, arguing with adults or refusing to comply with rules or requests, being resentful and spiteful, deliberately annoying others or becoming annoyed by others, and blaming other people for one's own mistakes or misbehavior. Now, every single one of those characteristics is perfectly normal for an adolescent to express or a child to express once in a while. It's when it's pretty much the stereotypical way for that child to behave that it starts crossing over into a problem. Conduct disorder is diagnosed when children show an ongoing pattern of aggression toward others, serious violations of rules and social norms in multiple different settings, and these rule violations may involve breaking the law and result in arrest. Children with conduct disorder are more likely to get injured and may have difficulties get al getting along with peers. So we want to look at children who are bullies. We want to look at children who get injured a lot to see if, you know, what's causing other kids to beat you up all the time or what's causing these injuries. Examples of conduct disorder, including breaking serious rules such as running away, staying out all night or skipping school, being aggressive in a way that causes harm such as bullying or being cruel to animals, lying, stealing, or damaging other people's property on purpose. There has to be a purposeful intent. Um, substance abuse has a high correlation with mental disorders in the 15 to 24 age group. The likely reason for most youth is self-medication. Sometimes they abuse substances or they start using substances to fit in. But then once they start using substances, since the adolescent brain is so much, it, it's still developing and their um, impulse control areas really don't finish developing until they're 25, um, they are more likely to become um, dependent on the substances. Eating disorders mainly affect females, although there's a high percentage higher percentage than we used to think of males with eating disorders um, and consist of anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. The age of onset for eating disorders they think is approximately 17 years old. But, you know, I can tell you I have worked with children as young as 11 who are exhibiting pathological eating behaviors. Treatment options. For adolescents and children, outpatient, day treatment and partial hospitalization, residential treatment, inpatient, community-based treatment. Now, a lot of times you can get case management and home-based services for children. Um, you can't get that for adults, but you can get that for children. So look into that because you're going to gain so much more information from doing home visits than you are from, you know, just the office visits. Therapeutic foster, hair, foster care and therapeutic group homes are also options for some children. Crisis intervention has three basic components, evaluation and assessment, intervention and stabilization, and follow-up planning. So when a youth is in crisis, we want to try to make sure that there are options available, not just a hotline. Crisis group homes can be helpful, which is kind of a step down from a inpatient crisis stabilization unit, but inpatient crisis stabilization units are helpful. 
runaway shelters, telephone hotlines, and even mobile crisis teams that can come out and help de-escalate a situation, hopefully to help the child stay in the, in the home overnight and be safe. Service delivery um, can run the gamut of, you know, what a child needs from case management to inpatient hospitalization. The emphasis is on being culturally competent, community-based, and family-inclusive. So we need to obviously be culturally competent. Community-based means making sure that we're taking advantage and building on the resources in the community and making sure that people can access it. They're not having to go to the next town over. And they need to include the family. Children live with their family. So if they are in a dysfunctional environment, then they're going to have difficulty coming out of it. Likewise, if the child is having these problems, the family probably needs additional tools to help the child help him or herself. A major problem in children getting help is the complexity of the system, which means or which causes it to be underutilized. Only one in five children with serious emotional disturbances get the help they need. And a lot of times that starts out because of a school referral. Financing of services, private insurance often covers it. Public sector, uh, managed care style thinking, if we're talking about Medicaid, um, can cover it. And Medicaid actually, I've worked at facilities that were approved by Medicaid, we actually were able to bill for a whole lot of services if the parents were willing to bring the child in. So effectiveness studies, just real quick, Fort Bragg study provided a wide range of services without any limitations. No capitation on visits, no, um, you know, none of that stuff that we have to struggle with in order for, to get compensation. Access was increased. Go figure. Children stayed in treatment longer, and there was high, higher satisfaction with services because they were actually getting to the point where they were ready to discharge, and the recovery had been integrated into their behavior and their lifestyle. You know, some of those old habits had been broken instead of eight or ten weeks and you're out. You know, they were able to stay as long as they needed. The Stark County study served the public sector with a multi-agency system. More case management and home care was provided than in other groups. There was no difference in clinical or functional status 12 months after intake. So, you know, providing case management and home care alone is not going to necessarily do it. What we need to look at is really reaching in into the community and providing services without limitations if we want to look at these two studies and try to draw something from it. Deviations from developmental standards within cultural and familial context is the best standard by which to define childhood mental illness. Is this appropriate? I mean, if, if mom tends to act one way when she gets upset, and that's how junior acts, you know, social learning would tell us, you know, Bandura's theory tells us junior learned it through social learning. So does that mean it's a mental illness, or does that mean it's an unhelpful behavior that junior learned? You know, we want to look at, look at that. Children deserve their own category when it comes to defining mental health problems because they do display them differently. They have far fewer tools that they can use, and they have far fewer experiences on which to draw in order to normalize what's going on. So it can be traumatic, and it can be, um, it, it can seem like the end of the world to them. Family history, genetics, stressful events, child abuse, and more can be risk factors for child psychopathology. The key is prevention. We want to look at any of these risk factors, and if families have them, we want to make sure that they can access additional resources as needed. We want to make sure that parents have access to, you know, quick little chunks of information about how to effectively manage child outbursts and effective parenting skills. And that can be done online. That can be done in public service messages. There are a bunch of different ways that they can do that. A pastor can give a tip at the end of a sermon. You know, there are a lot of different ways we can get that information out there. Research is still underway to validate the effectiveness of mental health treatment forms in children. Just like adults, we don't know for certain what's going to work with every child. 
Often the best approach is a multi-systemic approach, not surprising. Make sure the medical team's involved. Make sure the parents are involved. Try to get the school involved with permission, and then we provide the mental health component. Okay, are there any other questions? And I will look up that question about whether the impact of depression in mothers or fathers is more impactful. Um, and let me show you. On our homepage, we have a tab called Resources. And this is where I will post any information that I find. That way, you know, if, if you want to come back to it, you can find answers to those questions. So I will post something there a little bit later today um, and let you know whether I find anything or not. Alrighty, everybody, thank you so much for being here on Thursday. Have an amazing weekend, and I'll see you on Tuesday. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe, either in your podcast player or on YouTube. You can attend and participate in our live webinars with Dr. Snipes by subscribing at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. This episode has been brought to you in part by allceus.com, providing 24-7 multimedia continuing education and pre-certification training to counselors, therapists, and nurses since 2006. Use coupon code counselor toolbox to get a 20% discount off your order this month.